Today's scripture is the story of Elijah the prophet fleeing the wicked king Jezebel after his God has bested her gods in a battle over which deity can end a three-year drought. It is a long and dramatic story, most of which I'm going to tell in the sermon. So I'm only going to read a few verses from the story at this point in the service. When we enter the story, Elijah has fled a death threat from the queen and is hiding out in a cave on Mount Sinai to which the Lord has directed him. So we begin at 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 11. The Lord said to Elijah, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind, so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and he went out and stood at the entrance to the cave. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, let us hear your word, even when it comes from sources that are new and inscrutable to us. Let us hear in ways that speak from distant times and places to our time and place. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. The Hebrew word for prophet is Navi, which means a person who is summoned by God to be God's spokesperson in a particular time and place. There are 15 books in the Old Testament that contain speeches and oracles of prophets. These are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. They all come at the end of our Old Testament. So those of us who have at some point in our lives gainfully intended to read the Bible cover to cover often don't make it that far. Prophets speak with great rhetorical power, often lyrical and poetic. Much of Handel's Messiah comes from the prophet Isaiah. Our opening hymn today contains a phrase from Jeremiah, there is a balm in Gilead. And the hymn surrounding the sermon refers to the event we are reading from Elijah's life, a still, small voice. Prophets use symbolic language and they engage in symbolic acts, acts we might call today performance art if we resonate with them or political grandstanding if we don't. Prophets are spokespersons for God on behalf of God's will particularly in their critique of fellow Israelites worshiping gods other than Yahweh 
or mistreating or oppressing the poor. Prophets confront kings and queens and others in high places. They do not mince words. They are rarely diplomatic. They have dreams and visions. Ezekiel's wheel within a wheel. Daniel's son of man coming in the clouds from heaven. Isaiah's experience of God high and lifted up. God's train filling the temple. And prophets are among the most eccentric people we encounter in scripture. They are intense. They are given to flights of religious ecstasy. They hear the voice of God more directly than most of us do. And they seem to live off the land without marriage or children, family, or friends. They often declare their message loudly and demonstrably in public places. They are the kind of people we veer away from when we're arriving at Nat's Stadium. We would not likely offer them our extra ticket particularly if it were in a seat next to ours. (laughs) Prophets make life miserable for kings like David, who forced himself on the wife of his military commander and arranged for that commander's death. And like King Ahab, who confiscated land from a man named Naboth and arranged for his death as well. And it's hard to listen to prophets in church on Sunday morning and then get into our expensive cars and go to brunch at a nice restaurant, as I'm going to do after the worship service today, or to poolside or golf at country clubs. We are even less inclined to tune in to profits, to the profits when inflation rises and our stock portfolios decline. Prophets arose in Israel about 800 years before the birth of Christ, and they pretty much faded as a movement by the time Christ was born. But among the people of Israel, they were strong enough in memory or legend that many people associated John the Baptist with one of them, Elijah, and some wondered if Jesus himself were a prophet. Now, beyond Nathan, who confronted King David... The first prophet that we encounter in the Bible is Elijah, who confronted King Ahab. Ahab was a person of such raging evil that Melville chose his name to give to the obsessed sea captain seeking the great whale Moby Dick. In addition, Ahab was married to Queen Jezebel, whose very name has been bequeathed to literature as a symbol of a wicked and conspiring queen and a name used to critique, stereotype, and even justify the enslavement of women at different points in history. I have never been asked to do a baptism of a girl named Jezebel. (laughs) Speaking on behalf of God, Elijah warns Ahab, the king of Israel, That drought is coming. Ahab doesn't seem to respond. Elijah goes into the wilderness to wait for the drought. Where he is fed by ravens. He encounters a widow and asks her for a morsel of bread and water. She has only a smidgen and she's reluctant to give it to Elijah. Because it's all she has to sustain her and her son. 
but she shares anyway. And suddenly the containers which carry her oil and meal flow with abundance. And later when her son grows ill, Elijah raises him from the dead and returns him to her arms. The second time we see Elijah is three years into the drought. He confronts King Ahab about the gods whose worship Ahab inherited upon his marriage to Jezebel. The Canaanite gods of rain and thunder and lightning and dew known as Baals. Elijah challenges Ahab and Jezebel to sponsor a contest to see whose deity can end the drought. Jezebel's gods go first, but to no avail. Elijah then puts... I added this at the wrong place, never mind. (laughs) No, no, this is right, Elijah. Okay, so their gods fail... Elijah then puts their prophets to death. Not one of his moments that we find particularly endearing, but part of the narrative nonetheless. Elijah then builds an altar and he places wood on it and he prepares a bull for sacrifice. And even though water is scarce, he douses the altar And the bull three times. So it is completely soaked. He then calls upon God to appear. And God promptly rains fire down on the soaked altar. Which consumes the sacrifice. Licks up the water. And ends the drought. But Jezebel is neither impressed nor deterred. She composes one of the more poetic death threats that exist in all of literature and sends it via messenger to Elijah. So may the gods do to me, she says, and more also, if I do not make your life like the life of one of the prophets by this time tomorrow. A threat of death from a queen named Jezebel to be carried out by this time tomorrow. Elijah flees for his life following his short-lived victory. He comes to the edge of the wilderness. He leaves his servant behind. He goes a full day's journey into the wilderness And he sits under a broom tree whose solitary profile against the moonlit sky is as lonely as his own life. He lifts his voice to God. It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life. Because I am no better than my ancestors. Like Rebecca and Job and Jeremiah, Elijah questions whether he wants to live. 
One of the great Hebrew scholars of our day, Robert Alter of Berkeley, says that the pattern of Elijah's life is confrontation, triumph, then dejection. It is enough, O Lord. Take away my life. But Elijah does not end his life and neither does God. Elijah falls asleep and at some point he's awakened by the touch of an angel who says to him, rise and eat. Elijah looks up and he sees bread and water on a rock. He eats and he drinks and he goes right back to sleep. The angel touches him a second time. Rise and eat or the journey will be too great for you. Elijah rises and eats. And the meal sustains him in the wilderness for that oft-quoted biblical time frame of 40 days and 40 nights. Elijah then journeys all the way to Mount Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, where God had given Moses the Ten Commandments. Elijah is the only person God ever sends back to that holy mountain after Moses and the Israelites have departed. Elijah spends a night in a cave in the mountain, like the crevice in which Moses had hidden from God when God was about to pass by. In the middle of the night, the Lord comes to Elijah. What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah answers, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the Israelites have forsaken your covenant. They have thrown down your altars. They have killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left. And they are seeking my life to take it away. Alone. I alone am left. Like the solitary broom tree against the night sky. God answers Elijah, go out and stand before the mountain of the Lord, the mountain on which Moses stood, for the Lord is about to pass by. There is wind, there is earthquake, there is fire, all the way that God traditionally appears to people. But the Lord is not in the wind. The Lord is not in the earthquake. And the Lord is not in the fire. But after the fire, Elijah hears a still, small voice. Or channeling Simon and Garfunkel, a sound of sheer silence. A sound of silence. Elijah wraps his face in his mantle because it was thought that anyone other than Moses who sees God face to face will die. Elijah then hears God again ask, what are you doing here, Elijah? And despite having heard the still small voice, Elijah can only answer in the way he has answered God before. I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, throw down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone and left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. 
confrontation, triumph, dejection. Despite the still, small voice, despite direct access to God, despite an epiphany, Elijah still remains in despair. But this time, the Lord responds with a charge. Elijah, go and return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael as king over Aram, Syria. Also, you shall anoint Jehu of Nimshi, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And you shall anoint Elisha as prophet to succeed you. God then reminds Elijah that there are 7,000 people who, like Elijah, have not bowed to worship the gods over whom Elijah has recently triumphed. In other words, Elijah is not alone. This time Elijah obeys God. He sets out from there and he carries out the anointings that God has commissioned. Confrontation, triumph, dejection, commissioning, and obedience. Elijah goes on with the work of his life. Now, not all the sermons in this series are going to be as narrative or storied as this one, but I will close by simply saying, sometimes... Not always, but sometimes it helps to be reminded that we are not alone. Elijah, there's 7,000 others who've not bent the knee. 7,000. You are not alone. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes it helps to be reminded that one of the ways we can find healing is through accepting a task that God has given us, assuming a responsibility that God has confidence that we can do, even though we may lack such confidence. And sometimes, not always, but sometimes, it is in a holy sight, a holy place, a place where we have worshipped before, a place where those in prior generations have worshipped, that we receive our commission, fulfill our task, and rediscover that we are not alone. A new task in a holy place where we have been before. We are not alone.